Welcome back to Behind the Mic Conversations of Hope. As you know, those of you that have been listening, this podcast is really focused on the stories of others who provide hope after going through some things that we all tend to experience. Today's show is the story of a man named Lowell McGregor, who is a concert promoter, but Lowell is also the director of TaylorMade Retreat, which is a place where those who are desiring to recover from drugs or alcohol can seek fellowship, spiritual awakening, and receive a fresh design on life through the 12 Steps. Lowell is a great guy. He's going to share just a short story with us about how he made it through and what God is doing in his life right now to help others. I hope that you enjoy this. Well, thank you so much for being here and taking time out. You're, you're a concert promoter, and here we are sitting in an old, the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling, West Virginia, and you said, let's just do this. Absolutely. <laughs> I wanted to meet the mic behind the mic. So here we are. Here we are. Mike behind the mic and the Lowell behind the mic. Yes. So, you know, we met through our mutual friend, Melanie Hall from Casting Crowns. And she's amazing. She Absolutely is. Amazing. Uh, she, she's a rock star and does so much. I don't know how she does it, but she introduced us. Uh, about an hour ago and heard a little bit about your story. Well, I'm going to share stuff with you that nobody in Casting Crowns knows about and nobody that I really work with in a professional capacity knows about, but uh, it's it's my story and uh, it's unique to me and, and you know, it's not something I, I try to keep as a secret because as we were talking before we started this interview, you know, some of the the biggest disappointments, some of the biggest struggles, some of the biggest tribulations of my life have turned out to be some of the greatest tools. And I have no idea what God's going to use, what parts of my life, what parts of my story are going to be of use to somebody else. So I try to just be an open book. So I started working in the music industry when I was 17. I'm 57 now. So wow. quick math, that's about 40 years. I started out as a stagehand at a theater similar to this. This was built in, I think, 1928. And the suspension bridge that's behind us, if anybody's wanting to Google while they're, they're uh, listening to this, it's the Capitol Theater in Wheeling, West Virginia. Capitol Theater in Wheeling, West Virginia. There's a suspension bridge behind us that was built during the Confederate War. Wow. This place has a lot of history. It's just an Beautiful amazing inside. location. Beautiful yeah. oh, The Art Deco, and they've remodeled it beautifully. It's oh, really yeah. a nice theater. And I started out at a theater similar to this. It was called the Paramount Theater in Portland, Oregon. It's now called the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. And... Uh, I was a 17-year-old kid. I didn't have a whole lot going on. I'd really struggled in school. I'd struggled from early on. I was kicked out of preschool, kicked out of kindergarten. I was kicked out of Cub Scouts. I really had a, uh, a tough time in my early, my early life and all the way up into my adolescence. Uh, by the time I got to 17, I was, uh, I was uh, definitely a ne'er-do-well. You know, I had been arrested for multiple uh, crimes when I was 14. I was carrying guns. I was really not a, a pleasant kid. Wow. And uh, God saw fit to uh, change the trajectory of my life by introducing me to a guy that was a stage manager of the Paramount Theater who offered, actually offered my friend a job, to be honest with you, and I tagged along. But I fell in love with it. I loved live music. I loved being backstage. I loved the excitement and the energy, just the the electric atmosphere that exists when you're putting on a show. You've got a certain amount of time to accomplish a big goal, mm, getting yeah. all those trucks unloaded, get everything set up, getting the sound check done, the lights right, getting the performers sound checked. You know, it's just, it's a kind of a frenetic pace that I really enjoyed. 
and I fell in love with it. And, you know, at the time I was drinking pretty heavily and I was into drugs. So my life kind of, even though there was an anchor, like we were talking about before, the music business, the work that I was doing was an anchor in my life. I was really spinning out of control. Sure. I'd gotten to the point of desperation multiple times, places where it was so dark I couldn't see a way out and attempted suicide multiple times. I overdosed on drugs a couple of times. Nowadays, with the fentanyl, had that been around back when I was mm. partying, yeah. I'm sure I'd be a goner already because that right. stuff is so unpredictable. Yeah. My life today is on the opposite end of that spectrum. I had a young man uh, overdose on fentanyl. I picked him up from the airport to take him to the rehab that we're going to talk about in a minute. I picked him up from the curb of the, the airport. Within a minute, he was completely unconscious and unresponsive. I didn't think he was going to make it. You know, I didn't panic. I drove back. I got a police officer. We got Narcan in him. But uh, today, it's such a precarious thing, the it battle is. against addiction and against alcoholism and the underlying causes and conditions. What people really have, and you know, for the mainstream audience that doesn't have any experience with addiction, doesn't have any experience either in their life or in the life of somebody that they love who's been touched by this, it's really hard to understand. Understand. And even the people that have been touched by it, you know, you look at a person, you think to yourself, why in the world would that person continue to do what they're doing? You know, they're losing their jobs, they're losing their relationships, they're, they've, they've been left with nothing, they're living on the streets. There's 30 women that are here from a, a rehab I went to last night and shared my testimony with that are all living examples of that coming out of jail. Yeah. But if given the opportunity, they'd go right back to it. Yeah, you know, I, I don't understand the addiction either, but I do know I, I was raised by a father who smoked. He probably started smoking at 14. Now, that's the closest I have to addiction, but I do know he tried multiple times in mm -hmm. his life to quit, and he just couldn't do it, and um, it ended up taking his life. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I know he desperately wanted to. That's, yep. that's a small window of perspective that I have with addiction, um, but I can't imagine what you've seen and what you've gone through. The problem with the, the addiction, the cigarette addiction, that's a physical addiction. Right. And you, it does, on some levels, change the way you feel. Mm -hmm. But there's a spiritual thirst that exists within somebody that's drinking too there heavily. Yeah. There's a spiritual thirst that exists inside of the person that, that's using drugs on an addictive level. Sure, there's the physical component. Mm -hmm. You have to physically separate yourself from the substance. But what happens is you have this mental obsession that tells you, you know what? You're not a worthwhile person. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't do this. You're an imposter. There's a voice inside your head that's constantly chirping at you, telling you. You know, that, that you're no good and you might as well just pick up. It may be more subtle than that. The, the narrative may be a little bit more complex. But the bottom line is the person that's, that's really addicted and is really alcoholic has a spiritual thirst inside them that has to be quenched. They have to understand what the underlying causes and conditions are of that addiction. I didn't understand. I would exert my efforts so hard. I'd try to work harder. I was trying to be the best stage manager, the best production manager, the best tour manager, the best whatever I could be. But alcohol would sneak up i'd take a drink and then i'd take a bunch of drinks and then i'd be off to the races i had no idea where it would end well and that stuff didn't fulfill you never right never i mean you you were doing what you love to do but you still turn to that alcohol for some reason correct and the motives yes the motives for my doing what i was doing were were driving me in the same way that my alcoholism and my addiction were driving mm -hmm. me i had a need to look like i was important i had a need yeah. to feel like what i was doing mattered i think that exists in regular people but not on the level that it does for an alcoholic or an addict. And, you know, it may manifest in, you know, I need a different girlfriend or boyfriend. I need a different job. I need a different sure. career. I need a different house. If I have a little bit more money, uh, one of my competitors back home uh, just died of alcoholism. He was 48 years old. He was a lot younger than I am. And uh, he drank himself to death. Happens all the time. Yeah. And he had 
all the the goals that he'd set out to accomplish he'd accomplish it doesn't matter if you're sitting in the boardroom or you're sitting underneath a bridge drinking out of a paper bag the disease and the underlying causes and conditions are the same and until we address those underlying causes and conditions we can't recover boy that that's that's so good and and i i truly believe that because i think part of the reason i'm doing this podcast is because i know we all want to feel like we're needed we all want to have a purpose and and I love what you said, whether you're under the bridge or whether you're the CEO of a company, you know, we all have needs that that we need to fill. But with alcoholics and with addicts, it's exacerbated. Absolutely. It's an extreme example of, and what it really boils down to is self-will run riot. We're driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, and self-seeking. We can't see. When you're being driven by something, it's like a vehicle that has a driver at the wheel. The vehicle has no control over where it's going. It doesn't choose whether it's going to careen down a beautiful beach drive or it's going to slam into a brick wall. That's right. The driver chooses that. Yeah. And when we're being driven by fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, that spiritual sickness that exists inside of us, those of us that have gone beyond the pale who've used it and drank to the point where there's really no return through human aid you know those things are set on a level that that normal people won't achieve you know people that don't have that addiction or that affliction can't understand why people keep making those mistakes well they're being driven by things unseen forces that they can't control exactly i i, I understand that more and more as i talk to people who have gone through that tell us more about your story um and and again, you, you said, so you worked with, with groups uh, through the years, mm -hmm. and you gave me a list of some of those, some pretty big, big names. Well, before I got sober, I toured with a local band out of Portland called New Shoes. They were wonderful people. Uh, I'd wanted to get out on the road. I'd been running a place called the Starry Night Club. I'd been working for a promoter as a production assistant. That was my first opportunity to start doing stuff out on the road. I had a couple instances where in, in uh, my drunken state, I got into altercations. At one point, I got arrested in Texas. Another point, I got left behind on the tour. I got so drunk, I ended up in a room that wasn't mine and got left behind. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was debacle after debacle i got back off that tour i picked up a tour with a east coast company with ll cool j eric b and rakim public enemy stetsasonic cool modi a bunch of rap artists mm -hmm. and you know i was a 24 year old white kid from portland oregon what did i know but wow. i started getting exposed to a whole new world sure the problem is i could have been very successful in my endeavors but I was handicapped by my alcoholism. That's right. I was handicapped by my drug use. And uh, I ran through the gambit. I started touring with, I moved to the East Coast with Billy Ocean, with Samantha Fox, uh, Inner City Information Society. But no matter what I did, no matter where I went, that same person was on the inside. I mm -hmm. still would hit that, that inevitable point where I would pick up a drink and the drink would take over. Yeah. I was being driven first by those unseen forces, the fear, self-delusion, and self-seeking. And then when I picked up, I was driven by my addiction, my compulsion, my my allergy to alcohol. Once I started, I couldn't stop. Wow. So that would, would undermine my ability to really both achieve physical success because I do sad and, and tragic things that would get me fired, would get me into altercations, uh, get me arrested. The only reason that, that I survived was because I was passing through cities one day at a time, you know, and ultimately I got to the point where even in the most successful circumstances, I still wanted to die. You know, I was wow. like living Groundhog's Day. No matter what I did, I'd go back yeah, to the same thing. Right. 
And, you know, at, at some point, you just become hopeless. And I was there. I came off of a, my last tour, uh, my second to last tour in New York City. I took a truck to Detroit. I got paranoid. I was completely losing my mind. I ended up down on my knees in the back of a truck. Uh, and I, I knelt down and I said, God, if there's a hell on earth, I'm in it. And please show me the way out. Mm. And that didn't happen right there. But a, a man later on said, you know, if you're in hell, I will come and I will kick down the gates of hell and I will walk out with you. But if you want to stay in there, you can stay on your own. And in that moment, wow. I knew I wanted to be let free of the gates of hell. Yeah. I went and I put myself into a treatment center. The treatment center uh, started telling me what to do. I did not really fare well with being directed in the way they were directing me. Not their fault. It was just who I was. I was mm -hmm. rebellious. I was 27 years old. And uh, they ended up saying that I was a polydrug user from an early age, displaying sociopathic tendencies, and that people like me couldn't get sober. That was my sobriety dates, 12, 10, 89. And uh, they were wrong. I went back at 18 years of sobriety to tell that guy that he was mistaken. Mm. And he'd passed away, so I figured I'd win. Hallelujah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I walked out of that treatment center into my first meeting, and I met a man by the name of Taylor Haynes. And Taylor Haynes, uh, when he shared, there was just something about him. There was a quiet confidence. And I remember what he said. I just remember being attracted to how he said it and who he seemed to be. You know, the things that I would have been attracted to would have been a, an attractive woman or a fancy car or a big pile of cash. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if that guy had any of those things. It didn't matter because he had something inside him. There was a spark that I could see. I didn't understand, but they told me to find somebody that had what I wanted. And somehow I knew he had what I wanted. Yeah. I told him I'd like him to be my sponsor. He said no. And uh, he finally agreed to let me come to his house. And he showed up at his house that Wednesday and knocked on the door. And he said, well, you made it. Come on in. But don't touch anything and don't talk to my wife. I said, okay, I won't. Went into the back room and he didn't tell me that my case was hopeless. He didn't tell me anything about me. He didn't put me down or make me feel bad because he knew that on the inside I was hollow, that I couldn't feel good, that I was in a place right. that was hopeless. Right. And that man gave me, he told me stories about his life. He told me some of the most degrading things I could think of one man telling another. And he handed me hope. And he told me that I was going to be given that gift and I was going to, if I followed the steps, the principles that he'd been applying in his life, I could have what he had. He had a nice house with stuff I couldn't touch. He had a beautiful wife that I couldn't talk to and a daughter he didn't talk to me about for a long time. He had an amazing life and was an amazing man and he gave me everything that he had. He spent time with me when he didn't have to. He shared, he'd take me out on his jobs. He'd take me out and introduce me to how he applied spiritual principles in his life. And the only thing he ever asked of me was to give that back. Later on, he told me if I, if I did those things, I wasn't going to have to worry about where I was going to work. I didn't have to worry about where I was going to live. didn't have to worry about who I was going to date or what I was going to drive. He said, if I just followed God's will, that everything else is going to fall into place on its own. And it has. Over the course of my career and my sobriety, as we were talking before, I've been, I ran the club that I got fired from, the Roseland Theater, it was called by the time I got back. Mm. Uh, and I went back to work for the promoter that I'd been fired from for my drunken antics, not showing up and, and putting the meter hoods on the meters, not taking care of the catering, not doing what I do today. Sure. And, and they hired me back and I ended up running the company. You know, over the course of that time, I built multiple outdoor amphitheaters. I did sold-out stadium shows in Seattle for Pearl Jam. I worked with Tony Hawk, producing his tours and events all over the country. Uh, I've, I've traveled all over the world. I've produced political rallies for Ralph Nader. I toured with uh, Pearl Jam on the Vote for Change tour. I've had amazing professional successes and experiences. 
but what's really most important is through all that, I've, I've tried to apply these spiritual principles in my life. I've tried on a daily basis to pray and ask God for his guidance to find what it is that he wants me to do. And over the course of all that time, the thing that I got led back to time and time again was I have to be working with other people to share that message of hope that was shared with me. The final step in that, at least to date, I feel like the last 30 years of my life were spent in training to do what I'm doing now. I opened up a spiritual rehab and a nonprofit endeavor named after Taylor Haynes called the Taylor Made Retreat in Beaverton, Oregon, eight minutes from downtown Portland. Yeah. In that facility, we have up to 16 people that come in and, and we basically try to strip away from them all the character defects that have been blocking them off from God and from the other people in their lives and try to give them the hope that they can have the life that they deserve, the life that they've been uh, estranged from as a result of their alcoholism and their addiction, the, the life that they have been driven away from by their fear self-delusion and self-seeking and, and as a result we were seeing a lot of miracles God's touching people's lives in ways that are unimaginable currently we're working on expanding we've got a massive architecture firm called ZGF architects that is designing tree houses for us we're on five acres of just amazing amazing property with old trees hundred years mm. 150 year old a couple of redwoods that are 20 foot around you know, and we're going to hopefully have tree houses out there. The whole property you walk on there, you know God's alive there. He's working. He's flowing through everything. And uh, we're just trying to allow that to manifest in people's lives as they come there to walk them to a point where they can find the spiritual awakening. They can find hope in their lives. When did TaylorMade start? Uh, 18 months ago. We purchased it August 9th of 2018. Uh, we started work on it on August 10th. We completely remodeled the place, opened up the property that had been completely uh, overrun with blackberries and laurel and uh, vine maple and alders, got rid of all the, the plants that didn't belong there, stripped away what didn't belong, and what came out of it was incredible. It's just a breathtaking facility. There's two creeks that are fed by an artesian spring that, that uh, wow. sends water cascading down both sides of it. And there's just an energy there that's that's palpable. So in 18 months, you have exceeded all expectations uh, as far as success rate there. The normal success rate, like at a, a high end, like super high end, you know, not to name any, but, you know, one that you'd pay massive amounts of money for, they're sure. running 8 to 10% success. Oh, my goodness. We're running about 85%. Yeah. And out of the 85, out of the people that have come through, there's been eight or nine people that have stayed completely free of their substance of choice for a year or more. Uh, we have people that have lived at the house for a year or more that went from, from clients, guests, and have become staff members there. Uh, it's really incredible to see what God's been manifesting. So I guess my question to you is, if, if somebody's listening right now and they're in that place that you were, or maybe they're not quite there, but they know they're on their way, What's your advice to them? What, what, what do they need to do to do an about-face and change their lives? They need to talk to somebody face-to-face. -face. They need to hear from somebody that they're not alone. They need to find that uh, the hopelessness that they may be experiencing is not unique to them. They can call me. My cell number is 360-433-1040. That's 360 360- 433-1040. You can go to our website, tailormaderetreat.org, and there's tons of resources out there. Our place is unique. It's a unique setting, but there's millions of people that have found recovery and found that connection, have been locked onto the beam of God's direction, and, and are more than willing to give their time to help you to recover. Uh, and if you can't find somebody there, call us. We'll be happy to help you. And the quote that you said about busting down the door of hell, it's their decision. 
Correct. They need to make that decision. And it's a tough decision to make. Absolutely. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about, you know, to go on to the bitter end or to accept spiritual help are not often easy prospects to consider. You know, it's easier to sit in the hell that we know. You know, when you're an alcoholic or an, you're an addict, the life that you're living becomes the only normal one. And mm. looking out beyond that, looking for something that's outside of you for a solution is a tough thing to do. Yeah. And to walk that walk, and that's a challenge. You're being asked to let go when... when the biggest challenge I've ever faced in my life was to be able to challenge everything I thought I knew about my life. I had a whole narrative that I'd created that allowed me to continue to live and behave the way I'd lived and behaved. And I had to allow myself to be challenged on every level to relook at my life and see that I wasn't a victim, that I'd really been the perpetrator. The reason that all these things, these, these horrible tragedies have befallen me was because I set the ball in motion and I had to look at that. Mm. And you know that prospect is daunting. Yeah. and not comfortable yeah. it's much more comfortable uh, that one of the trademarks of an alcoholic or an addict we don't want to feel discomfort mm -hmm. if we wanted to feel discomfort we wouldn't be doing the alcohol and the drugs right. you know we want yeah. to escape from feelings yeah. and as a result over this period of time that we've been drinking and using you know we're we're removed from our feelings we're removed from being able to connect with other human beings we're removed from god i guess out of all that you said i i would just want to say the one thing i can tell them those that are struggling is you're not alone People love you. We want to help you. You have the knowledge and, and the resources to help along with others. And God loves you. And I can tell you what Taylor told me. If you're willing to, to practice these principles in your life, if you're willing to really give up your self-will and, and apply the spiritual principles in your life, you can do anything you want to do. You can be anybody you want to be. You can live anywhere you want to live. You can have a new sense of freedom, a new sense of peace of mind that's unimaginable. But you have to do the work. Yeah. I can't give it to you over the phone. I can't give it to you if you come stay at our house for 30 days. You have to do the work to strip away those things that have been blocking you off. But when you do, the rewards are unbelievable. Unbelievable. I challenge you. Try. And I'm just talking about the, the physical, what I see in you. You're, you're in Wheeling, West Virginia tonight. You, are, you live in Oregon. Portland, Oregon, yep. And you're out here, and you're doing exactly what the Lord has called you to do, even after all you've been through. That's just a, a one example of uh, how your life can change. I live for this. I sat down with 25 or 30 women at a women's rehab last night. Mm -hmm. They're all here at the meet and greet right now, you know, sitting crying with them, yeah. talking about their struggles and mine and how they, they correlate. You know, this is what I live for. This is what God put me here to do, and I'm going to do it. Lowell, I want to thank you for being here uh, with us, and I appreciate you taking time. you got some guys waiting on you to get this thing going, so we're going to let you go. But cool. um, I will put all of the notes that you talk, your phone number and, and your website and sure. some other resources that we talk about later on the uh, show notes. Good to meet you, Mike. Thank the you. Mic behind the mic. Well, I hope Lowell's story was encouraging to you. I really want to see if we can't get him back. As I mentioned, many of the resources that Lowell mentioned are in our show notes. So we ask that you would take a look at those, share them with those you know who are struggling. That's really what God is using Lowell to do right now. All of the things, all the history that he has with drugs and alcoholism, he's using now to help others to walk through that tough path of recovery and find the hope in Jesus Christ. I want to thank Lowell again for joining us. He was actually preparing for a concert in Wheeling, West Virginia, and when he found out that I wanted to hear his story. He stopped everything, took the time because he wanted to share with those of you who want to listen and glean from his experience. So Lowell, thank you. We hope to have you back soon. 
If this has helped you or if you think this is helpful to someone you know who's dealing with addiction, please share this with them. I also want to remind you, if you're listening to Behind the Mic Conversations of Hope and it helps you in any way at all, please share this with your friends. And also, if you're on Apple Podcasts, please go there and click on those stars to rate us. Thanks again for joining us. We'll talk to you next time on Behind the Mic Conversations of Hope.